0: Well, back uh, in March of 2020, we started a series of sermons on Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. It was a series that we were doing uh, for Lent, and we got a couple weeks into that series. And I don't know if you guys remember much about March 2020, but things kind of went kablooey. Uh, And so we we shifted. We went to a passage from Philippians, and then for the rest of Lent, we preached uh, Psalms of Comfort, Those were uh, sermons that we preached into camera lenses that you all watched at home. Uh, So I thought that it might be good uh, to return to that series from 2020, maybe just emotionally satisfying to return to that series from 2020 for the rest of Lent this year. So we are, and we're going to follow Luke's gospel. At perhaps the height of Jesus' fame and the height of his popular support, he told his disciples... That he was heading to Jerusalem to suffer and eventually be be killed. This is the way that Luke, the gospel writer, puts it back in chapter 9 of his gospel. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that road to Jerusalem is hard and beautiful all at once. It is the road that leads to Jesus' death. And it is the road that leads to our life yours and mine and the world's. So we're going to pick up this morning on that journey uh, just outside of a town called Jericho, which is a little over 12 miles from Jerusalem. I'll read from Luke 18 for us, verses uh, 31 through 43. And taking the 12, he said to them, And they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought near to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we think about this uh, word that we've just read and heard together as we meditate on it for the next few minutes that you would watch out for us, that you would be our shepherd, uh, that, that you would... Uh, Keep all of us um, exactly where you would like us. Those of us uh, who feel as if we want to wander off. Those of us uh, who feel um, that we're not sure we, we're what flock we're even in. Father, would you meet every one of us um, with your shepherd's hand? Would you show us the grace of Jesus again? And would you change us by it? We ask it in his name. Amen. So every once in a while, we get stuff here uh, at the church with our name and our logo printed on it. It's stuff that's sent to us in the mail. It's uh, promotional stuff, and it is uh, sent to us, of course, in the hopes that we will buy those things in bulk. Usually, it is a pen that is sent to us, like those pens that are in the pews uh, right in front of you. Um, But every once in a while, uh, they send some other stuff. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I got a pen knife with our name and our logo on it. had a corkscrew, a nail file, everything. Um, and a couple, couple weeks before that, I got a pocket-sized notebook, a pretty nice one. Had a nice enclosure on it, had its own little pen uh, strapped to the side of it. And I have to admit that the logo on the front of this notebook looked pretty good. So I was showing it to some of the staff here in the hallway behind the sanctuary. And one of the staff commented on how nice it looked and asked if they could see the notebook so they could get a closer look at it. Just for sake of anonymity, we'll call the staff person G. Pearson, okay? So old Gene P. took the notebook in his hand and he looked really closely at it. And by the way, he's told me it's okay to tell this story. <laughs> And he looked closely at it, and he held it in his hand, and we all watched as he took his index finger and his thumb and placed it over the logo and did this move on it. He tried to expand the logo, tried to make the front of the notebook be larger, like he was looking at a phone, like he was looking at a touchscreen. That is a, a very modern thing to do. And we all just kind of stood together in the hallway cracking up. We get, we get used to interacting with things a certain way. We get used to seeing things in a certain way. And sometimes that can throw us for a loop. And that is, I think, the situation that the disciples find themselves in right before they get to Jericho that day. And Jesus pulls them aside to let them know what is just around the corner for him. Jesus speaks plainly to them. He is very straightforward. But it's clear that they've gotten used to interacting with him in a certain way. It's clear that they have gotten used to seeing him in a certain way. And so none of what he says makes any sense to them at all. Luke makes sure that we get that. In verse 34, Luke goes to great pains to make sure that we get that they didn't get it. And he does it by telling us three times that they didn't get it. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what Jesus says. Okay, Luke, we get the point. They couldn't see. And then cue the story of the blind man who saw Jesus perfectly. And there is no coincidence to this at all. This moment in Jesus' life which is captured and told in this very particular and very beautiful way is about really seeing Jesus for who he really is and reckoning with what that means for people like us. So uh, Jesus and his disciples have been on this long and circuitous journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of the gospel writers, those gospel writers tell us about this. They tell us that after Jesus' birth and upbringing, he preached and he worked nearest to his home in Galilee. And as he uh, teaches and as he does miracles during this stretch, really big crowds start following him around. And then when those crowds seem like they are at their biggest, Jesus takes the 12 aside and he asks them if they know who he is. (laughs) And Peter answers for all of them, and he's right. But it's also very clear that they don't really know what that means. And from that point on, things start to change. Jesus starts telling his disciples that he's heading to Jerusalem to die. And they start off on this wandering journey to that city. Like I mentioned before, what Luke says is that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, I think that Luke has chosen those particular words on purpose... And I think he's chosen them to echo Isaiah 50, which was our Old Testament lesson that we heard this morning. I got to say, the New Testament writers do that a lot. Um, They're always making connections between Jesus and the long story of God and his world that has come before Jesus. They're always doing it. Sometimes they do that by directly quoting the old story, by quoting the Old Testament. And sometimes they do that like Luke is doing here, just by just by alluding to it, like, like a sample of an old song put into a new song. Or like a line from an old great literary work slipped into a new poem. They do this all of the time. And Isaiah 50 is what one of what we call the servant songs. There are four of them in the book of Isaiah. And God sends this servant, and this servant has a kind of mysterious identity. Sometimes... The servant appears to be the whole nation, all of God's people. Other times, it's clear that the servant is just one person, this representative who goes out in front of the nation. And God sends the servant to do amazing things. The servant restores exiles and the, the servant establishes justice. The servant is a light to all of the nations of the world. The servant defeats enemies and sets prisoners free. The servant makes the blind to see. And he does this, in part, by suffering. Isaiah says, and we heard it in our, both our call to confession and then the illusion that First Peter made that we heard in our words of assurance. Isaiah says, it is with the wounds of the servant that we are healed. And in Isaiah 50, the servant says, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be put to shame." And I think that's what Luke wants us to hear when he tells us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He's making connections between the old story and Jesus' story. But Luke is not the only one making those connections. Jesus does too. And you see it in verse 31. They get right outside of Jericho, and Jesus pulls the 12 disciples aside around the corner somewhere, and he says, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that has been written about the Son of Man by the prophets, all of it will be accomplished. Jesus is connecting the old stories and all of the great promises in those old stories, the promises that God made of restoration and of healing and of justice and of peace and of the forgiveness of sins and of vindication. Jesus is connecting all of those old stories to his own story. And I got to tell you, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be there and to hear them say that. I mean, he had hinted about these things and teased around the corner of these things and all of his parables and and all of his teachings, but now he's just telling them plainly. And it must have been thrilling, and it must have been exciting, and it must have been deeply moving. I mean, this is the thing they had waited to hear him say for so long. This is the stuff of their dreams. And then Jesus paints this detailed portrait of rejection and abuse and disgrace and humiliation and death. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed. All of that, all of that's from that servant song in Isaiah 52. I gave my back to those who strike, the servant says. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And this is where we get back to that idea of how we sometimes get used to interacting with things in a certain way, and we we sometimes get used to seeing things in a certain way. I mean, Jesus has not been mysterious with the disciples about this stuff. In fact, this is the third time. It's the third time that he's told them that he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem but that's not all that he's taught them. He's taught them a lot of things about suffering, and he's taught them a lot of things about trouble. And and they're hard to understand and they're very different from the way these guys had been raised, but he has told them a lot about suffering and trouble. He said, "Listen, you guys, those who mourn, they're the blessed ones." He told them that. He said the kingdom of heaven actually belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He told them that. He said those who weep now, listen, those who weep now are blessed because one day they will laugh. He told them to love their enemies. He told them to pray for those who persecute them. And he told them more than once that if they want to follow him, they will have to take up their own crosses to follow him. Jesus has been open and clear, so I don't know. You know. I don't know if they thought that Jesus was talking you know, in riddles and parables like he likes to do. I don't know if they thought it was some metaphor or some poetic device for something else. I don't know if they were just so scared to look dumb that they didn't want to ask him what he meant. I don't know. All I know is what we all know, which is what Luke says. They understood none of these things. Another way to say it is that they have been following him for at least two years, probably more, and they are still oblivious to the larger plan. They're following him. They're following Jesus. And I want you to know, faithfully following him. They're listening to him as he's preaching about his kingdom, but they have not yet internalized the beautifully and scandalously inverted values of that kingdom. Because in that kingdom, suffering and shame and disgrace and trouble run seamlessly into vindication and blessing and healing and honor. (laughs) They're woven together in these unexpected ways, in these completely uh, surprising ways. This kingdom is like no place they've ever known before. This kingdom is God's kingdom, and God can hold suffering and vindication together. And God can hold trouble and honor together. And God can hold shame and healing together. Of course, they don't understand that. Of course, they had lived their whole life seeing things another way, they had lived their whole life interacting with the world in a completely different way. Of course, They've been looking at Jesus with one eye closed, you know? Of course. And of course, that's me too. And maybe you can admit that it's you as well. I'll tell you how I know it's me. I know it's me because my gut reaction when I'm attacked is not to want to love like Jesus told me to. My gut reaction is to want to attack back. I know it's me, I know I have blindness, because when suffering and trouble come into my life, my gut reaction is not to remember that Jesus promised that I would have a cross if my life is hidden in his. He promised me that, but I don't remember that. What I think when suffering and trouble come is, why is absolutely everything falling apart? Why is everything unraveling? Where is God? Why doesn't he care? I often can't or won't see how suffering might be used by God to do some good in my life or in the life of those around me that I love. But God does that. He makes His power perfect in weakness. He used suffering for the life and healing of the whole world. And I believe that. I believe it. I believe that God, in in the mysterious and powerful way that He works in the world, can use trouble to make honor. I believe that God can use death to make life. I believe it. I mean, I know what Jesus taught about His kingdom. I, I believe that it is by the wounds of the servant that we are healed. I believe it. I know the Beatitudes, I know the parables. And unlike those guys on the road with Jesus that day, I also know that the resurrection happened. But none of that, church, none of that means that I've learned to see it perfectly. And none of that means, by any stretch, that I have learned to walk this stuff out consistently in the way that I am in this world, in the way that I live. Gregory, who was the 5th century bishop of Rome, said it like this. The disciples have learned much, but there are some things, even very plain things, to which they remain blind. (laughs) And church, part of growing up in our faith is being able to say that that's true of us. (laughs) That there are plain things to which you and I remain blind blind. That is the nature of being a disciple. (laughs) And it doesn't do anyone any good to pretend that that isn't how it is. And the only remedy The only remedy for our blindness, the only thing that I know of that will allow our eyes to be opened, the only remedy that I know that will allow us to recover our sight little by little is simply to continue following the one who is the light of the world. That's what the disciples did. You notice Jesus doesn't make a scene. He doesn't make a scene with them on the road like, Why don't you guys get it? Why can't you get this stuff through your thick skulls? Why are you guys staring at me with that look you always get? He doesn't say anything like that. With patient grace, He continues to love them and He just keeps walking in front of them and they just keep following Him. So, church. Let us keep following him. Not only when we understand everything that's going on around us, but maybe more diligently when we don't understand everything that's going on around us. Let's keep following him in worship together every week. Let's keep following him in those disciplines which have shown themselves again and again over millennia (laughs) to be critical to the good and flourishing of God's people. Scripture reading and prayer. Let's keep following him and when our blindness leads us to sin, when it leads us to a failure to love, let's confess and return to the one who is always out looking for prodigals to come home. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Keep it until that day, as the Apostle Paul puts it, keep it until that day that Jesus lets us see him face to face. Keep following him. Keep the faith. So, on they walk. And just outside the city of Jericho, a blind man was begging alms. And he hears the crowd that is accompanying Jesus. And he asks, what's it all about? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And his response in verse 38 is both immediate and shocking. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you know the only other person in Luke's gospel who has ever uttered a word about Jesus being part of David's kingly line? Do you know the only other person that's uttered anything about who Jesus is in that way? Gabriel. (laughs) As in the angel Gabriel, when he told Mary that Jesus was going to be born. And one of the most beautiful things about this story is the mystery that lies at the heart of this man. How in the world, how in the world did he know this? I mean, in a couple of days, the multitudes in Jerusalem are going to sing Hosannas to Jesus. They're going to say, save us, Jesus. They're going to say, save us, son of David. The children will sing songs to him about him being the son of David. But the very first person to speak it out is this man by the side of the road. And Luke tells us that those who were in front of him rebuked him. They told him to be quiet. This causes the guy to double down and cry out all the more for mercy from the son of David. And church, this is what Jesus does. He stops the whole procession. People had to bump into each other. He stops everything so that he can make this guy a part of his journey he emphatically commands some folks to bring him near. And when he gets near, he asks, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) And this guy who started this day, like every other day of his adult life, out begging for money, this time shoots for the moon. Because even though he's blind, his sight is unparalleled. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And with that commendation, he joins a very surprising and a very beautiful list of people whose faith Jesus has commended. You know whose faith Jesus has commended? The, the Roman centurion, the pagan centurion whose servant was sick. You know whose faith Jesus has commended? The the woman of the city, the sinner who anointed him in the Pharisee's house. You know whose faith Jesus has commended? The the Samaritan leper, the one guy out of ten who came back to Jesus to say thanks. This guy joins that esteemed list of heroes of the faith. And that's why I say the only remedy for your blindness and for mine is to keep the faith, because Jesus said it. Our faith makes us well. Our faith saves us, because even if it's tiny, even if our faith is thin, even if our faith is measly, even if it's barely holding on, it connects us to the one who has always stopped to make people like us a part of his journey. Our faith hides our life in the life of the one whose patient grace will lead him all the way to the cross for our forgiveness, for our life, for our healing. Let me pray for us. Father, help us recover our sight and help us to keep the faith. Help us to continue walking after you and following you. Help us to learn from you. Give us whatever we need, the humility, the patience, whatever it is that we need to continue following you and keeping the faith and learning from you. Father, do this so that we can grow up and be mature as disciples, as followers. And do this so that through us, you can love the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.